We turn to Psalm 42. Book of Psalms, Psalm 42. We read the psalm. We take the first two verses as our text for the preparatory sermon this evening. We hear the inspired word of God. As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my meat day and night, while they continually say unto me, Where is thy God? When I remember these things, I pour out my soul in me, for I had gone with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God, with a voice of joy and praise, with a multitude that kept holy day. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted in me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. O my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore will I remember thee from the land of Jordan and of the Hermonites from the hill Mizar. Deep calleth unto deep at the noise of thy water spouts. All thy waves and thy billows are gone over me. Yet the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime. And in the night his song shall be with me and my prayer unto the God of my life. I will say unto God my rock, why hast thou forgotten me? Why go I mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a sword in my bones, mine enemies reproach me, while they say daily unto me, Where is thy God? Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him who is the health of my countenance and my God. As I stated, we take as our text the first two verses. As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? May God bless his word to our hearts. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, although there's no author mentioned with regard to this psalm, we have the heading of the psalm to the chief musician, Maskell, for the sons of Korah. Likely the psalm, nevertheless, is that of David. The style, the tone, the words are very similar to Psalm 63, with which we opened the worship service this evening. And that psalm is identified as a psalm of David. Interestingly, this psalm is intended for the sons of Korah to sing. That's striking because... That's for a generation then of one who is swallowed up by God's judgment. You children remember Korah, Dathan, and Abiram had rebelled against Moses and Aaron. God's judgment came on Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And while the families of Dathan and Abiram were included in that judgment, Korah's children were not. The children of Korah are repeatedly identified by the Bible as those who are David's singers. Evidently, Korah's children were believers, and they were spared by God, as indicated 
as an indication that God does not judge the children for the sins that they did not commit. God does not judge the children simply because of the sins of their fathers. The judgment that fathers bring upon their children is the judgment in the way of the children now continuing in that sin. But now this psalm is written for the sons of Korah. And the psalmist desires God's face. That comes out in verse 11. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him who is the health of my countenance and my God. Most likely David is forced to flee here by Saul. Saul is chasing him away again. And the result of being away from God's house, away from the saints, is that David begins to fall into a state of melancholy, a state of depression. He becomes lethargic, and he begins to express that, as is evident here. He's cast down. He's disquieted. Verse 11, Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him who is the health of my countenance and my God. Literally, God is the salvation of my countenance. God is the one who is able to lift me and make me know true, lasting joy. That's what David says. God alone can give me true, lasting joy. And that describes then why he's panting after God. As we prepare for the Lord's Supper next Sunday, Lord willing, where is it that we're looking for happiness and joy? Is our confession with the psalmist that God is the only one in whom there is lasting happiness and joy? Or do we think we can find that happiness and joy elsewhere? Do we think we can find it in the things of this world? The alcohol, the drugs, the pleasures, the sex of this world? Do we believe that we can find it in the materialism, the things of this world? Are we looking for that joy and happiness in relationships or in a future relationship perhaps? Are we looking to some great purchase that we're going to make and that's going to give us that joy and that happiness? David's confession here is no. Joy and happiness is not concentrated, not found in the things of this earth. They cannot provide that lasting joy. Jehovah God in Jesus Christ is the only one who's able to preserve and keep me in the enjoyment of that lasting joy. And therefore, after him I pant. He is the objects of my desire. And so we ask ourselves, am I panting after the Lord? Am I living in the consciousness that apart from God, there's only death? With him alone is life. We look at this passage under the theme, panting after God, noting the meaning, the cause, and the satisfaction. As the heart panteth, so panteth my soul. We're familiar with a deer hunt. And that's the picture that the psalmist here paints for us in Psalm 42. Now there are times, as you well know, where the hunters find a blind or maybe a tree and they hide behind it and they just stay seated and they wait for the deer to come to them. Perhaps they make use of calls, other means, so that the deer will come then and then they can get close enough where they can then harvest that deer. Other times, a bunch of hunters get together and they chase the deer and they try to ambush them, perhaps in a section where they can trap them and then they can proceed then to harvest the deer in that manner. 
the picture we have here is that of a heart, that is a doe, a female deer, who's being chased. So that it's not a situation where a hunter is waiting for her to come to him. The hunter is after that deer. And that deer has been chased. And that doe, being chased now, experiences two things as a result of that chase. First of all, she's chased out of her familiar territory. She finds herself now in a new strange territory. She doesn't know where the water brooks are. She can't find readily the stream that previously would provide relief for heat. But secondly, she's worn out. And she's tired out. And the result is such that she stands shaking and quivering in weakness in this unfamiliar territory. She's overheated and needs water. She needs water first to drink, to quench her thirst. But secondly, she needs water so that she can walk into the cool, refreshing stream in order to bring her body temperature down. Her body temperature is heated to the point of that which would be dangerous. And so the picture here is that of a frail doe, skinny legs, shaking, quivering, because uncontrollably, She has been chased and she's gasping now. Her chest is going in and out, gasping for breath. The idea is not just a deer that's a little bit thirsty. This is a desperate situation. And the situation is such that this deer without water will not live much longer. I need a drink or I'm going to die. I need water or I'm going to overheat. The comparison now is made to our soul. As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. David's situation, he says, is as dire, as desperate as that of that deer. David, too, has been fleeing for his life. Saul has been chasing him. David is out of his familiar territory. And David now finds himself as one who is extremely desperate for refreshment. Now for David, it's not so much physical. There was that physical aspect to it as that comes out again and again in the books Samuel where David is fleeing for his life. But more importantly, on the foreground here is the spiritual situation. David is away from familiar territory and in this situation, the concern is this. He's away from the tabernacle The tabernacle is where he knew fellowship with God. Now he's far away from the tabernacle. He can't experience the communion and the fellowship with God that previously he had enjoyed. And David is in a situation where without the presence of the living God, he too faces perishing. Without God's presence, everything's in vain. Life is not able to be lived. David knows that he needs the presence of Jehovah God. He needs to know more than just God's everywhere present character. We know that. God is everywhere present. God is able to be everywhere in this whole world at one time. But David's concern is deeper. David's concern is the living God as a God whose face of love is being directed toward David. David needs to know that. 
As David is living in the midst of this life, and as he's being chased by Saul, doubts, fears start rising up. Perhaps God hates me. God must be moved with anger against me. Perhaps God is casting me off. And so David longs to know the presence of the living God as God's countenance, God's face now of love and favor looking upon him and assuring him, David, you are the object of my love. You are the object of my favor. David needs that face of God. Now we think about that. What does it mean to have someone's face toward us? We learn to read one another's faces. And we can determine if someone comes home after a long day of work from their face how their day has gone. We can sense from their face that look of frustration or we can sense that look of love. And from our spouse, We long for our spouse to be looking at us, not with frustration, not with fear, not with terror, but with a sense of love. The psalmist here is desperate to see God's face in order that he might know what is the face of God toward me. How is God viewing me? What is God doing to me? And how is God in all of my life and the circumstances of my life viewing me what does God think of me does he care about the fact that I'm having to go through this difficult trial does he care about the fact that Saul is chasing me and Saul is seeking my life every step of the way does he care about the fact that I've been chased so far away now from the tabernacle that I can't enjoy fellowship with the living God any longer I'm being forced David says to flee for my life Pain and suffering is my lot. I'm filled with anxiety because of the circumstances and the way of life that God is requiring of me now. And I'm struggling to keep myself encouraged and to be able to encourage the men who are with me. Is this a sign of God's anger? Has God turned his face from me? Or is God's face of favor yet upon me? Is God looking at me with hatred and with anger or in love? That's the desperate need here of the psalmist. Now often, we don't think about that very much, do we? We don't think about what God is thinking with regard to us. Sometimes we're so spiritually insensitive that we really don't even act like we care. Are you concerned about Jehovah God and your communion, your fellowship with God? Are you concerned with what God is thinking about you and what God is doing with regard to the circumstances and situation of your life? There are those who don't have any kind of spiritual concern, and they're not concerned. The fact that David is concerned displays a spiritual positive in David's life. David cannot live apart from God. The child of God, regenerated and given new life from above, cannot live apart from God. He longs for God. He longs for the favor of God. He desires to know that love and that favor in his life. David here doesn't write this as one who is spiritually dead. He's alive. And out of that life, he needs to know God's attitude 
toward him. This is the cry, beloved, that rises from the heart of the one who knows God, who's been saved by the wonder of God's grace, who's being drawn closer and closer to the experience of God's love and God's goodness, but struggles because there's temptation, there's consequences due to sin. Every single day, things are happening that cause me to start to think, perhaps, perhaps, all of this is happening because of some unconfessed sin in my life. And perhaps God has moved with anger against me. Beloved, there is no one who cried this cry like Jesus Christ. And you know that cry. Jesus found himself on Calvary. In the midst of the three hours of darkness, he cried out, I thirst. He was panting after the water brooks. And it wasn't just a physical desire. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This was a spiritual longing. Jesus could not live apart from fellowship and communion with his heavenly Father. And he now was struggling to understand the circumstances through which he was being guided. And as he endured the pain, the suffering of hell itself, paying the price for all the sins of his children, he cried out. As he came close to the end of that important work, Jesus was saying this, to know the light of God's countenance, to know God's face, that's what I need. In this deep hour of distress, I need to see my Heavenly Father and His love for me. I need the assurance that His love is toward me. It's not against me. Verse 5. Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise Him for the help of His countenance. Again, in verse 9. I will say unto God, my rock, why hast thou forgotten me? Why go I mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? He needed to know that the suffering he was enduring and what he experienced did not mean that he was being cast off forever. That's the longing of the child of God. It's easy, beloved, for us to experience a sort of spiritual lethargy. We just go through life, our soul needs something, but often we get our thrills, we get our joy, we get our happiness from the things that are here below. From our earthly relationships, sporting activities perhaps, maybe it's the accomplishments that we're able to make, maybe it's books that we can read. We get joy and we get happiness essentially the same way the ungodly are getting it. And we find joy then. We find happiness and we're pretty satisfied with our life here below. We're not very conscious of our sinfulness. We're not focused on our sins and the barrier that they create between us and God. We're not walking with that burning concern for the face and favor of Jehovah God. Beloved, the heart of true religion is true faith in Jesus Christ. If we're seeking and finding satisfaction in the things of this life, that joy, that happiness is not going to last. It's all going to be taken from us. Everything is going to be burned. 
We're going to have to leave it all behind when we die. The regenerated heart hungers and thirsts after the living God, after righteousness. As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. Desperate our need is for God and for his face of favor toward us. Like that deer, we find ourselves out of breath, overheated, hardly able to stand for a moment. And our longing and our desire is to know God and His favor. Now what is the reason? First of all, it's because our sin. Our sin makes us pant after God. God opens our spiritual eyes. He makes it so that we see ourselves as we are seen by Him. And we see our sin and we see our sinfulness. God makes it so that when you pray daily for the forgiveness of your sin, and when you look at your life and you look at the course of your day, increasingly you're struck with the fact that those sins are real. And you're struck with the fact that those sins are acts of rebellion against God. And that those sins are sins that you could avoid, but you don't want to. We see the horror of our sin. Sometimes we can pray, forgive us our sin without really even meaning it. But then God pricks us, doesn't he? And God makes us see that sin. He moves us to confess it to others as we've sinned against others. And he works in us that awareness of the sins of the day and the ways in which we've violated his will and we've sinned against those that are close to us. And the result is that we start identifying those sins. We start adding them up. And then we think of those sins in light of God's goodness, God's mercy, God's love. We think of what God has done for us. And we realize how ugly, how dirty those sins are. We realize how unthankful we've been. Those sins are committed against the goodness and the majesty of Jehovah God. And the more we think about God and His love and the blessings that He's bestowed upon us, the more we realize how filthy and how horrible, how despicable those sins are. We realize it's not just the things I do, it's the things I don't do that are wrong. We begin to understand the concept of sinfulness and we realize that it's not just a matter of the things that I've committed, it's a matter of the thoughts that also rise up in my mind. It's not just a matter of the sins, it's a matter of my sinfulness. And we realize that old man is there constantly. He's with us when we're awake. He's with us when we're sleeping. And that I'm sinning even when I sleep. He's directing my dreams even in ways that pursue lusts and reveal the sinfulness of my nature and my depravity. I'm not only a sinner, I'm sinful. And that makes me think then of how I got this way. And then I have to look back to Adam and Eve and identify myself with Adam. Not in order to rise up over against him, but to acknowledge I would have done the same thing had I been in the garden with Adam. I can't stand in judgment against Adam and Eve. I would have chose also for the devil and against God. And evidence of that is that every day, I'm doing the same thing. Instead of seeking God, 
because of my sin, I'm inclined still to try to find satisfaction in the things of life. And so as I look at myself, and I look at my own sinfulness, and I realize how warped my mind yet continues to be, and how I still, even though I know better, continue to return back to those sins, I'm filled with shame. In a sense, beloved, this is what we're inclined to do. Imagine if you're on a raft floating in the sea. You've been lost for days. You're thirsty. You're consumed with thirst. And so finally, an act of desperation, you reach your hand over the edge of the raft and you grab a handful of salt water and you suck it up. Is that going to help? It's not. It's just going to make the situation far, far worse and more desperate. We try to find relief in the wrong places. And instead of it helping the situation, it merely makes our circumstance all the more desperate. But secondly, this fervent panting is not only an acknowledgement of my sin and my unworthiness, but it's also that which desires fellowship and communion with the living God and recognizes I deserve hell. I deserve to be cast off forever. And yet, my God has pledged His love toward me in Jesus Christ. My only right is to hell. I don't deserve anything else. And when something happens to me then in my life, I realize two things. First, I'm never going to receive what I deserve. Because I deserve to be cast off forever and to go to hell. But God in his mercy has saved me from that. And so never do I foolishly say, I don't deserve this. I know that I deserve far, far worse. And secondly, what I do get as a child of God is something that I don't deserve. I don't deserve to know the love of God in Jesus Christ. I don't deserve to know God's favor and God's compassion toward me. But there are times when the circumstances and situations of life get to us as they got to the psalmist to the point that we're discouraged, we're cast down, we're depressed, and we're in a circumstance where we're starting to ask questions. Where is God? Oh my God! Cast down we are. It seems that he's forgotten us. And desperate then is our desire to see his face, to know the assurance of his love. Sometimes we even start wondering, can I be a child of God? If I'm thinking these thoughts and I'm doing these things, is it possible that I'm a child of God? The canons of Dort beautifully express those struggles and those difficulties throughout the canons. If I just read here from Article, the head, from Head 1, Article 16, those who do not yet experience a lively faith in Christ, an assured confidence of soul, peace of conscience, an earnest endeavor after filial obedience and glorying in God through Christ, efficaciously wrought in them, and do nevertheless persist in the use of means which God hath appointed for working those graces in us, ought not be alarmed at the mention of reprobation, nor to rank themselves among the reprobate, but diligently to persevere in the use of means." and with ardent desires devoutly and humbly to wait for a season of richer grace. 
much less cause are they to be terrified by the doctrine of reprobation, who though they seriously desire to be turned to God and to please him only, and to be delivered from the body of this death, cannot yet reach that measure of holiness, that measure of faith to which they aspire. Since a merciful God has promised he will not quench the smoking flax, nor break the bruised reed. God promises that he will care for us. And evidence of the fact that we are a child of God is that concern with sin and that burden with regard to sin. The wicked, the worldly person isn't concerned about his sin and concerned about God's favor. But the child of God who knows that wonder of God's grace expresses that concern. And the genuine concern is this. Am I desperate for the face of God? Do I know, do I believe that I cannot live apart from Him? That to know Him is life everlasting and that in the face of my sins, I desire to know forgiveness. I want to know and be assured that my sins, every last one of them, are forgiven. That I've been washed through the blood of Jesus Christ and that I have life. Do you desire, beloved, to know the beauty, the joy of the favor of Jehovah God and to know that his face of love is upon you? That's the desire of the psalmist. The fact of our shame, of our sin, shames us and drives us to our knees. But the work of God's grace within our hearts causes us to pant after God. Therefore will I remember thee, we read in verse 6. The fact that the child of God recalls experiences of past sweet communion with God is what makes us desire it all the more. And that's the experience here with David. He knew times of joy and refreshment with God. The deer enjoyed walking in the refreshing and cooling streams. Now, when there's none available, that heart, that deer, misses it all the more. There have been times of joy, times of pleasure, times when we walk close to God. We knew God's favor. We knew that we could not go a moment apart from Him. And walking in the enjoyment of that favor was life. It was delight. We experienced spiritual highs as a result. God was with us, and God was upholding us, and God was giving us the knowledge of forgiveness. He was giving us peace. He was giving us comfort. Beloved, there's nothing more delightful. And the child of God knows that experience throughout the course of his life. It's not that we can compare the delights and the wonders of this life over against those memories. Nothing can compare having God on our side and knowing the peace and the joy of his favor and of his presence with us. He holds my hand. He will never let it go. And I believe that. I know that. He's the one who's working everything together for my good and for my spiritual benefit. And he gives me the peace. He works in me the faith that that truly is certain. Whether I see it or not, he's working in my life with his hand for good. And that's the comfort. Sometimes he privileges me to be able to see and to understand the reasons. Often not. We can't see how it's good. But we believe that God is working it together for good. 
the thirsting arises out of the consciousness of those days. Those days, as the psalmist speaks up, when he enjoyed going to the house of God, when he enjoyed fellowship with the saints, when there was a multitude that kept holy day and when he was thrilled in the experience of that worship. God will not quench the burning flax or the smoking flax or the bruised reed. And that's a picture there of God's children. There's life. Even though that life seems so frail, that life seems as though it's but hanging on by a thread. God is preserving his own and God is keeping them. And that taste that God is good is yet their experience. And that taste is what motivates us. That taste moves us, as the canons say, to wait for seasons of richer grace. That taste motivates us to keep using the means, keep attending worship, keep praying, keep digging into the Word, trusting that God will restore and He will renew me again in the experience of His loving fellowship and His kindness from which nothing can separate me. I don't feel like it. But I have to press on. And I press on knowing God is faithful, His way is good, and His will is good. When we're tired, when we're tempted, when we're inclined to ask, has God forgotten me? Has God forgotten to be kind? The child of God never stops. The child of God presses forward because the child of God is not content to be in that season. He desires to know the grace of God more fully. He wants to taste it. He wants the favor of God and God's face upon him more fully. That's the way of joy. That's the way of happiness. And that's the confession here of the psalmist. When shall I come and appear before God? Now how is it that the child of God is restored? How is it that God's favor and God's faith again become evident. We can identify a difference in which that took place in the Old Testament than in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, David had to physically get to the tabernacle. And that's spoken of here in verse 4. When I remember these things, I pour out my soul in me, for I had gone with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with a voice of joy and praise and with a multitude that kept holy day. In the Old Testament, when they felt far from God, they went to the tabernacle. There, God was present. There, they would experience the marvelous wonder where the priest would speak the blessing that we hear every Sunday evening. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord's face shine upon thee, be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance, his face upon thee, and give thee peace. That's the beautiful assurance that the people experienced when they went to the tabernacle. The priest was there. This is where God lived with the people. And as the priest raised his hands and as he blessed the people, they heard that blessing and their hearts thrilled that God was the God who would cast off their sin. He was the one who had given them the lamb through whom atonement would be realized. And the wonder of his love and his favor was upon them. 
they would be reminded of that wonder through the work of the priest. By nature, God's face is in a scowl toward me. But by grace, his face is toward me in love. In these Old Testament times, that face of God was experienced then when David would go to the tabernacle and he would experience it. David was away when he wrote this. He wanted that closeness to God. He longed to be in the tabernacle, back in the fellowship with the saints. And for David, the answer then to this psalm comes in the way of returning again to that fellowship of the saints in the tabernacle where he could hear again the words of the priest on his behalf and he could experience the loving presence of Jehovah God with him. Now, beloved, the wonder of the cross changed that experience for the child of God. The one who cried like this, I thirst. The one who cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Was forsaken by his Father for your and my sin. And when that happened, he cried out about the Father's forsaking. And what happened when he did that? When your sin rises up, what is your experience? When you become desperate because you wonder how God could ever love someone so ugly, what do you experience? We remember Jesus. You heard Jesus cry. And what happened? The sun came back out again. The darkness lifted. God heard his cry. And God answered it with his presence of favor and love. Through the darkness, through the struggles, God's face again was made evident. And it wasn't a face of wrath. It wasn't a face of anger. It was a face of love. God embracing his son, giving him to know that he had accomplished fully that which was necessary to pay for the sins of his people. He has forgiven me. He has mercy on the sinner. And he will take me to be with him into the fullness of his grace and his love. After the sun came out on Calvary, Jesus was able to know the joy and blessedness of commending his soul to his Father. He died without fear. He died knowing that he was embraced by his Father and that he would be brought into the bosom of his Father at the moment of death. And beloved, because, that, because of that work of Jesus Christ on your and my behalf, we are able to know our thirst will be quenched. God will provide us with what we need. And he will restore the light of his favor and his countenance upon us. The things of this life, they're like that salt water while on the raft in the ocean. They may provide a little bit of relief temporarily, but they're going to make us more and more thirsty. And the devil just keeps trying to lure us into the things of this life. But nothing, beloved, nothing can satisfy. We need to learn, increasingly, I can't depend on anything of myself. I can't depend on anything in the midst of this world. Jehovah is my strength. And God directs us to the wonder of the cross. He directs us to the wonder of what Jesus did for me. He took upon himself the full wrath that I deserved. And therefore, his countenance is always upon me now in love. He will never withhold from me that love and that favor. 
He sees me as one who's in Jesus Christ, one who's covered with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And as such, he will keep and preserve me from the devil. Through all my trials, all my afflictions, I look to him. And I'm given to know the wonder of his love. And he guides me as I hear the preaching of the gospel. And he works by his spirit in my heart, giving me to know that's you. You are that sinner saved by grace. You are that one who's beloved of your father, your heavenly father. And he works in us through the sacraments, the strengthening of our faith, in order that we might know and believe what great wonders he's performed on our behalf. He alone will preserve and keep me. And him alone is joy and happiness. And I need to realize more and more as I go through this life that everything has been ordered by my Lord and that he's leading me by his counsel and that he's bringing me to confess that his goodness and his mercy are sure and that he is the health of my countenance. That's the question David asks and answers in verse 11. Who is the health of my countenance? He is the one who gives me strength. He's the one who refreshes my soul. He's the one who provides me with the strength that I need to persevere and to press on down life's journey. Beloved, when we cry out to God, his answer is, I have you. You are secure. I'm holding you. And I will keep you. We know the poems, those footsteps are mine. I'm the one who's carrying you. You've been forgiven. I will not cast you off. I've embraced you in love for Jesus' sake. And the beauty of God's love and favor is such that we know it as that which is unending. God says to you, he says to me, my relationship with you is one of unending love and grace. Nothing can separate you from the wonder of that love. Nothing. Nothing this world throws at you. Nothing the devil comes at you. Because I will preserve and I will keep you. I forsook my own son so that you will never be forsaken. And I will maintain and preserve my covenant. Drink. Drink of the water of life. And so, beloved, we come to the table. We eat and we drink by faith. And we think of Jesus' broken body, his poured out blood. And we think that he's in me. And because he's in me, I will be preserved and kept. And I will know the wonder of his countenance, his favor, and his love now and to all eternity. That's the richness of his grace. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, prepare our hearts in the coming week. Cause that we might know in the circumstances and situations of our life the wonder of thy face of favor, thy face of love toward us. Not because of anything of ourselves, but because of what our Lord Jesus Christ suffered on our behalf. And that we might be assured that as we cling to him by a true and living faith, and as we live our lives in thankful praise unto thee, the God of our salvation, thou wilt keep and thou wilt preserve us. And thou wilt lead us to richer seasons of grace. Thou wilt give unto us in the midst of our doubts and fears the blessed assurance of the wonder of thy love and thy faithfulness 
that knows no bounds. Preserve and keep us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.